Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Hattie Williams, News Reporter. On this week's podcast, we preview what's coming up at the General Synod meeting in York, and we talk to Nell Goddard about surviving as a clergy family. The Archbishops have added a debate on the state of the nation to the General Synod's agenda for when it meets in York next month. Madeline, you've been rounding up for us what's coming up at Synod. Can you tell us more about this particular debate? Yes, yeah, so this was announced last week um, when we attended a press briefing at Church House. There's going to be a debate, um, as you say, on um, the state of the nation and in particular sort of the aftermath of the general election. Um, the motion refers to the Church of England um, acting as a still small voice of calm. Um, and the motion, which is quite long, um, sort of commits the Synod to do several things, um, including for uh, praying for parliamentarians um, and calling on Christians everywhere to maintain pressure on politicians um, to put the cohesion of the nation and its communities at the heart of their programmes. Do you think this is a debate a lot of people will sign up to speak? I imagine so. It's possibly quite a similar move by the archbishops to the one that they tabled um, around the time of the EU referendum. Um, I think there's generally a feeling at General Synod that rather than being um, entirely sort of inward looking, um, they need to show that they are kind of invested in the nation, that it's um, sort of the church for England and that they're conscious of what's happening on the national stage. Madeline, what else is on the agenda for York? So the bishops will be presenting an important update on two promises that they made in February after the Synod voted to not take note of their report on sexuality. Um, So one of those promises was to create a pastoral advisory group um, and this would offer advice um, on ministry to same-sex couples um, and also on matters of discipline. Um, so the membership of that group has now been announced. Um, the membership of another set of groups has also been announced. They will be tasked with creating a new teaching document. Um, at the press briefing on Friday, we heard that it's now been decided that it's sort of such a vast piece of work that no one group could do that. So a coordinating group will be overseeing various working groups, each allocated a sort of different area of expertise. Is this kicking so, it into the long grass? They were challenged about that um, by one of the journalists. And the message was, um, you know, the length of time dedicated to it and the size of the group is just a reflection of taking it seriously. Um, so it was argued, you know, it's not something that you can do in three months. If you're going to do it properly, um, you know, you might as well go the whole way and, and sort of dedicate um, what will be a quite costly amount of resources to it. And the Synod is also going to be debating Jane Ozan's motion on conversion therapy. Do you think that's likely to be quite a heated debate? It's certainly something that's being discussed on various blogs um, online. I think the um, the General Secretary's report is quite detailed. Um, it looks at the evidence. Um, it looks at what various professional bodies have said. So I'm sure that will be weighed up by members of Synod. I think it's notable that um, it does say this note that it would be imprudent to support this sort of therapy. Um, Also quite notable that the group Living Out has said that it doesn't support um, this sort of therapy. So there is potential for, I think, some kind of alliance on that. So one of the members of Living Out, who's also a member of Synod, um, did tell one of our reporters um, that he had concerns about the motion. Um, So it will be interesting to see um, where the votes fall. There's been quite a lot of press coverage 
before the Synod meets about the Dust's emotion from Blackburn, which is calling for a special form of liturgy to mark the new identity of people who are completing gender transition. So this has been put forward by a vicar from the Diocese of Blackburn, um, who's proposed um, a service that wouldn't be a baptism, um, because people might already have been baptised, but more of a renewal of baptismal vows um, that could be made in this person's newly acquired legal name, uh, sort of a a way of welcoming them um, to the church. Um, This is actually um, held over from an earlier synod, um, so there's already been quite a lot of media coverage around it. Um, This will be an opportunity for the, the synod to finally debate something, which has actually been on the agenda for a while. And it's quite an interesting diocesan motion from Birmingham Diocese about the cost of applying for British citizenship. Hattie, do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. I think there's been some concern that the fees at the moment are extremely high. Um, for example, in the United States, the fee for an adult is £563. Um, compared to Germany, it's £222 and £163 in Australia. So Ben Franks, who proposed the motion, um, suggested that these um, high fees are actually beyond uh, the means of of low-income families. And actually, the majority um, of those who can't afford to apply for citizenship also cannot vote, so they don't really have a say um, when perhaps they should. The Church Times has for many years covered the goings-on at Synod in some detail, more detail than anyone else. Um, we'll be out there in force. We look forward to seeing people. We'll also be live tweeting the debates, so do follow us for that. Is it worth just saying a bit about how what it's like covering sin or what the atmosphere is like, um, what it conveys about the Church of England? Having just been to the Scottish Episcopal Synod, um, it's for some comparison, it's quite different to that. So um, the Church of England is is obviously a very big church, and actually one diocese in the Church of England is about the same size as the whole of the Scottish Episcopal Church so um, the atmosphere is a lot wider you might be able to say. Um, So something I spotted when I was looking through the Synod papers um, is that the Archbishop's Council has asked the Business Committee to be more radical um, in some ongoing work which is called Changing the Culture of General Synod. Um, they've produced this sort of draft code of conduct which they're going to be discussing at a fringe meeting Um, and that includes some advice which is if you wouldn't say it to their face please do not say it on social media and so I guess something that's changed in recent years um, is that you know discussions comments happen online both during synod and in the build-up obviously people are then going to be encountering people face to face and so potentially good advice um, given that you could encounter somebody that you've been talking about um, sort of in person. So did any parts of this week's edition stand out, Hattie? I would recommend um, uh, reading our report on um, Peter Ball, uh, the independent um, inquiry into his case uh, was published uh, last Thursday. The report uh, is called An Abuse of Faith and it uh, contains a huge amount of information about um, a particular period of time. And actually we've had a letter from... uh, a synod member from Rochester, Martin Sewell, who recommends that all synod members actually read the report, um, uh, not just before synod, but in general. Um, it contains uh, not only uh, what happened, but also a series of recommendations as well on safeguarding um, and, and other issues in the church, um, particularly concerning um, upholding reputation over uh, supporting uh, survivors. So I, I do recommend that. And I've got to draw attention to absolutely brilliant cartoon from Dave Walker, 
much missed in the office. Um, He's tackling the Reformation this week um, with some tips on how to celebrate the 500-year anniversary um, with some really brilliant cartoons. And it's something of a Reformation special this week, um, coming up to the 500th anniversary in October. We've got three comment pieces by leading academics, um, a feature by the Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin, and um, really interesting pieces on the portrayal of Martin Luther in film by Stephen Brown, Richard Charters, the former Bishop of London, on the legacy of the Reformation in the Church of England, the Dean of Bristol, David Hoyle, on the Reformation and art, and also Lucy Winkett on the legacy of the Reformation for church music today. And in a few weeks, we're going to be reviewing most of the main Reformation books that have been published this year to coincide with the anniversary. So do look out for that. We're delighted to be joined on the Church Times podcast by Nell Goddard. Her book, Musings of a Clergy Child, has just been published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. I'm also joined by Hattie Williams of this parish, who is also a clergy child. Now, Nell, you're a member of a rather privileged group, because I believe not just one of your parents, but both of them are members of the clergy. Can you tell us a bit about them? They are indeed. Um, They started ordination training when I was six months old. They got ordained when I was two, maybe three. I distinctly remember falling asleep in their ordination service. (laughs) Very long, very boring. Um, And then they did a joint, they job shared their curacy. So they did part-time curacy, part-time childcare for me and my brother. Uh, then my mum was an Oxford chaplain and my dad taught um, Christian ethics at a theological college. Then my mum moved to that theological college. Then we moved on and we're another theological college. And then now uh, my mum is vicar of a central London church. And my dad is an academic theologian who does lots of freelancey things, I think. And how, how did you come to write this book? It was actually a bit of an accident, um, which everyone laughs when I say. But um, basically it started as a as a joke uh, top tips for clergy kids top top 10 tips that I put in a Christmas letter um, the kind of round robin Christmas letter that everyone sends out I didn't want to write about my life I was bored of my life and I was like I'll write a list of tips instead so that happened and then everyone's like oh you should put there must be stories behind this you should write those up so then I started a blog and that escalated somewhat and last summer I got an email um, saying do you want to write us a book I was like, you're joking, right? They're like, no, write a book proposal. So um, when I definitely should have been writing one of my final year essays, I wrote a book proposal instead. I don't think I even read it through properly before I sent it off. I was so convinced that they were just mm. having a joke. Um, and then last February, they were like, yeah, no, we want we want you to write us a book about being a clergy kid. And so here I am, having written a book about being a clergy kid. <laughs> Are there many books out there already on this? Not that many, turns out. It's quite a niche niche topic and not many people want to write about it, it seems. Oh. What do you think uh, drew people to your blog? Was it the, the humour of it? Because I've read some passages, it's, it's quite amusing. Yeah, I think it was... I tapped into a weird niche of clergy parents and clergy kids. Like Everyone knows a clergy kid, um, but it's just the humour of it because the experiences are unique to me but also they're kind of universal like every I used to get just random emails or twitter twitter messages from people being like oh yeah no I recognize that kind of that boundaries are excellent things or that weird gifts thing like I got this random ceramic rabbit appearing on my front door (laughs) and you're like oh okay so it's not just me and it's this kind of camaraderie of it's not just me like someone else knows how it feels and they put it into words do you have many friends who are clergy children? Because, I mean, I know I had a lot, but it's probably from school, I think. But uh, I don't know, we seem to band together and have a little group of us. Um, do you have Do you have many clergy children friends? Yeah, here and there. Here and there. There were a fair few from kind of when we were in theological college, because obviously those trainee vicars had kids and then 
they were they were clergy kids sure. they breed um, <laughs> but um yeah a few um not loads but um you kind of you are drawn to each other you're like yeah no be my friend you understand <laughs> do you have siblings i have an older brother yeah okay does yeah. he sort of uh contribute to your posts or he has featured in a number yeah yeah we we often kind of bounce ideas off each other and stuff. what do your parents make them were they were they amused by it generally or embarrassed at all um, generally amused, occasionally a little embarrassed, but I always, I'm quite careful about running stuff by them before I post it or put it in a book. Right. Um, it's, everyone often says like, oh, is it an expose in your parents' parenting? I'm like, no, it's, it's really not. Um, and you know, if there's stuff which I, I talk a little bit about how it sometimes it feels like God has stolen your parents. And I, I talked that through with my parents quite a lot and made it very clear that this wasn't necessarily my experience, but the experience right. of sometimes of me, but often of those who I've spoken to are also clergy kids. Um, so I'm quite careful about that. So does the book draw on not just your own experience, but people you've spoken to? It's mainly my own experience, right. but when I kind of talk more generally, I will bring in kind of conversations that I've had with other people as well. Right. well. We're running an extract from the book in next week's edition of the Church Times. I thought we'd just talk about a few of the tips you've got for, you've written for clergy children and then the tips for clergy parents. So, I mean, the, the first one, we mention is is that boundaries are excellent things. Um, you say that you're considered public property if you're a clergy kid. Yeah, I don't know if Hattie agrees with me here, but you can sometimes feel you grow up in a goldfish bowl. Essentially, your your life can be a spectator sport, particularly when you're a teenager and it's your love life. Um, I find I have found, um, but this kind of idea of we operate an open home policy, which is great, um, but people are in and out all the time, and something which I learned slightly later than I would have liked possibly is how to say no to people and be like actually no you can't come in right now I'm home alone I don't really want you in my space Mm. or you need to leave now I want to go to bed Um, which is a surprisingly difficult lesson to learn sometimes because you're scared of offending people absolutely I think people in churches expect the clergy and their family to always be open I mean did you find that Hattie that you had to say no to people sometimes I'm terrible at saying no, um, so I'm not sure I inherited that life skill, but um, you are on display a lot of the time, um, but it was never, it's never malicious, it's it's just one of those facts really, um, and you kind of accept that, and you get a lot of privileges being a, a, a vicar's daughter, um, you know, you get the, the, the big house and the garden, which um, I wouldn't exchange for the world, um, to be honest, so... Um, yeah, I mean, occasionally, especially when you're a teenager, I think it starts to grate a bit more when sort of people are like, you know, it's like the drunken uncle in Bridget Jones, like, how's your love life? And you're like, okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, other than that, people are generally, you know, parishioners are very, very caring. They're very sweet and they, they're looking out for you, really. And that's, and that's the main thing, I think. Did you ever find now that people reacted negatively when you said, no, I don't have time now, or could you please leave? Um... Generally not. There were some. There have been some slightly more um, difficult characters who have struggled with the boundary situation. Um, but generally, everyone's been fine with it. And when you kind of explain, like, I would like you to leave now. I mean, we're British. Like, we're like oh goodness, sorry, we yeah, leave. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> um, but there are some people who are a little, little more difficult. But generally, like, really hasn't been a problem. It was just my own thoughts of being like, I don't want to offend you, right. like getting out of your own head. Yeah. You say always lock the toilet door. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this was a lesson learned the hard way. Um, we have um, we have one toilet which kind of everyone uses in the house, and one day the lock broke. My, my parents were, oh, we'll fix it, we'll fix it. They didn't fix it. 
<laughs> like so many people, a surprising number of people will just barge through a closed toilet door and you'll have to be like, no, I'm in here. Like, please stop it. Um, which I think is just a human thing rather than just a vicarage thing. It's just a good life tip. Like lock the toilet door, people. Mm. But it's particularly relevant if you have people in and out of your house a lot, which you do when it's a big house with a big garden and it's a very nice house. People come in, like you feed them tea, mm. you give them cake, like what's not to like? Um, but do lock the toilet door because you don't want to have to have a conversation with someone on Sunday over tea when you know they've walked in on you weeing 24 hours previously. <laughs> I have to say that one did make me uh, chuckle, but we were, we were quite lucky in that we did have one downstairs toilet, but it was kind of separated from the rest of the house because we kind of had our parish office, uh, our parish uh. office, my dad's parish <laughs> office in uh, next to the study and there was downstairs Lee, so it was more out of laziness if we used it really because otherwise yeah. we had to go all the way upstairs, but... A good tip, I think. Yeah, when they're set out like proper vicarages, like yeah. they're often segregated, a division between church and state, I like to call it. But, um, you know, some houses, some vicarages aren't the custom-made kind of ones mm. and they're all over the shop. This open-door policy your parents mm. had, is that quite common or is that particular? Are some clergy more... Do they exercise more boundaries in that way? Where they? It depends how you do ministry. It mm. depends how old your kids are, I think. Mm. Um, we did, we've done it all my life, but um, we... Uh, my mum was a chaplain so that was with students rather than like mm. the general public and then when I when we moved into London when I was 16 then it became even more so so I think it's it's a personal choice some people do it incarnational ministry they often call it other people are like very clear about um their boundaries that I don't know what you what you did Hattie yeah I mean in terms of open door do you mean that what do you mean by that like um people know that they can come knocking on the door and be let in apart from if it's a day off um, people will ring at about one in the morning being like, I'm lost and drunk, can you come and help me? Mm. And we'll go. So things like that. Yeah, no, I think that's. I think that was true with us. Um, except, I mean, the front door was, again, that was sort of part of the bit of the house which was kind of separated. Mm. Um, and we, we used to answer the door and we used to answer the phone as well, which was interesting. <laughs> we used to try and take messages from my dad at the age of nine and get it horribly wrong and then he'd get really annoyed. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not your secretary. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, so we did have that, but I think um, I think normally if mum or dad was in, they would obviously go to the mm. door first, and if dad was in, his study was right next door, so it wasn't didn't really affect us too much. I think that probably the main thing was um, my dad had a lot of meetings, so they always like treat him to the dining room, and you know if you want to play in the dining room or like you know if you're doing your homework there, then it was a bit annoying, but yeah, yeah. nothing nothing too tra- traumatic. <laughs> Another of your tips for clergy children is uh, don't bother waiting for your parents before leaving church. This resonated with me. My dad um, wasn't a vicar, but he was a church warden. So a lot of people trying to bend his ear. Yeah, and that (laughs) bit where you're really hungry and and you can always smell the roast dinner on at home and and you're waiting around and all your friends have left, so you're bored. And Mm -hmm. it's about, yeah, so could you talk a bit more about... I mean, it's that just experience. general good life advice if your parents are well known in the church, whether they're vicar or church mm. warden or teach Sunday school. Like, mm. always, if you're allowed to, just go. Like, don't believe them when they're going to say, oh, just be five minutes. Love. Mm. I'd love to walk home with you. That is a lie. <laughs> they will not be five minutes. They will be 25 minutes. And mm. you will be so bored. Mm. You have to try very hard not to be rude and just, like, grab their hand and walk off. I tried that once and my mum got quite cross with me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's just good life advice, really, because particularly if you live in a vicarage which is right next door, you can just go home. Like, it's <laughs> it's literally next door. <laughs> Why would you bother waiting? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, 
Yeah, actually, my dad was never really a problem because we always just left him to it because, I mean, we would be there for hours. Mm. You also got some tips for clergy parents. Mm. Um, one of them's involve your children in decisions. Yeah. yeah. And I just, this is, most of the tips for clergy parents actually boil down to communication, ultimately. Mm. Um, but the thing that we found worked really well as a family was my parents would always involve us when we were going to move. Um, they'd talk to us about it, like, let's look at this parish profile so um was that a consult you I mean, was yeah, your we'd, opinion we'd get a, we'd get a say it. we wouldn't necessarily have a veto mm. um sometimes we did um but it would be very much a family discussion and that meant that we didn't feel like the ministry was being like taking us on a ride yeah. but that we had a part to play in mm. it and we were we were a part of him it was a family thing like you didn't he god just didn't just call your parents he called the family um which i think is quite Sometimes it feels the other way, um, as it does with all things. But um, that was a really good way of just being like, actually, we do this together. This isn't a, Dad's got a new job, we're moving. It's a, okay, this job has come up, we'd like to maybe apply for it. What do you think? How would you feel about that? What are your boundaries there? Is this from quite a young age? Yeah, as long as I can remember. Like, even when we were um, picking houses to live in for my parents' first job out of curiosity when I was five, I remember being involved in that decision. So I suppose, I mean, members of the clergy do have to move around quite a lot. That's, yeah. that's quite a tough part of yeah. growing up in a, in a yeah. family. Perhaps. Yeah, some end up staying for years. I'd lived in eight houses by the time I was 16. Right. Um, so I'd done my fair, fair share of moving around, but that's I don't know about you, I know I was quite lucky. I mean, um, my dad was vicar in Newquay, and then we moved when I was about three um, to Christchurch, and we stayed there for um, about 17 years, I think it was, yeah. in the end. So, I mean, that was my whole childhood, so... In that respect, I, I didn't have that experience, but I can imagine it was um, it would be quite... I don't know what the word is, really. Um, <laughs> it's quite an upheaval to have to move around so much, I think. Um, I, I probably wouldn't have coped with that as well, I don't think, but mm. that was my dad's decision to, to stay where he was. So, And some people get, get that decision made, and mm. some people, jobs come and go. Mm. Yeah. By the time they did move, I mean, I was at university and they actually um, moved to London. My dad was preacher of Charterhouse and I'd gone to King's in London. Mm. So they kind of almost followed me yeah. to London, which Rude. I wasn't quite sure about that. <laughs> but, um, so that. but they certainly did consult me about that and, um, you know, showed me the house and everything else, yeah. so, which was very much appreciated. Yeah. You're also right that children will see and hear everything, so talk about things with your children. Yeah, it's really funny. I think... I mean, just generally in life, I think adults often forget that children hear things mm. and they understand things. And um, that's very particularly notable with clergy kids because you'll be like having a pastoral conversation with the vicar and then you won't realise that their like, child is there or is listening. Mm. And so just the kind of things that you hear in a vicarage, like I remember waking up age six, um, my mum was out of, um, out of the house because one of uh, her students had tried to commit suicide in the middle of the night. And I remember being like, oh, heck, I don't, I, I don't know what that is. Can I talk to you about it? I asked my dad loads of questions. When my mum came back, asked her loads of questions. She'd been up all night. She's a saint, so patient. Yeah. Um, asked her loads of questions. We prayed about for the student. And um, it's just things like, like they hear things and they'll ask questions. And that's okay. Like, it, it's not a situation if you'll understand when you're older. Because, again, you're blocking them out of your ministry. And if you do ministry as a family, then no question is too big, mm-hmm. is my logic there. Do you think some members of the clergy would want to feel the need to protect their children from some of the more distressing aspects of their ministry? Or, or is it better to say, this is what we do and this is life? So I think you know your child. Mm. And that's that, what, what I tried to do with these tips was make them genuine enough that it wasn't like, this is what you must do. But yeah. I kind of, let's think about this. 
and you know your child, you know how easily scared your child is, you know mm. how easily, um, how interested your child is in, in this particular issue. So work it out through with your partner, with your child. But just think about it. These are things to think mm. about um, that you might not have considered, I guess. Have you had a lot of sort of comments and feedback on some of the things you've said, like particularly tips, as you say, for clergy parents? Have you had anyone say, well, actually, I'm not sure I really agree with that or actually that's been really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, a few a few people have been like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this whole um, letting your children ask whatever question they want like, and being expected to tell the truth to them. Mm. Like, people find that a bit weird. It's, I guess it's like the whole like, Father Christmas thing again, isn't it? Like, would you would you tell your children about Father Christmas or, or not? And people have very strong opinions on these things. Other people have been like, that's really helpful. I've never thought that through before, thank you. Particularly those who are just beginning mm-hmm. to, just being ordained or um, about to become parents as clergy. Um, but I just want it to be like a thing, like think about this, just just consider it, like drop it in and let it simmer and see what happens. Obviously, both your parents are um, ordained. Is mm. that something that you've ever considered or, or thought about? <laughs> I mean, I know I haven't. The but... age old question. <laughs> Does it everyone, put you off or? Everyone asks me this. I'm like, been there, done that, got the t shirt essentially, just not the dog collar. <laughs> I have no plans to, but we all know what a sense of humour God has, so let's not rule it out. Indeed. <laughs> And you say, let your children be selfish about their time with you. Yeah, which is possibly one which has caused a little bit of um, discussion. Um, Because, you know, when you're a vicar, you get a a stipend. You don't have a salary. Like, you get money to do the ministry. And so some people are like, this is my life now. Um, But I I think of it as... My my parents have always been really good about days off. Um, So they'll work really, really hard the rest of the week vicars only work on Sundays but you know what I mean um but on Saturdays they would always take Saturday off and that would always be our day with them um that we wouldn't answer the phone they wouldn't be on emails they'd probably turn off their mobiles when mobiles were a thing um and um all that was really important because often as aforementioned like you can feel a little bit like the church is still on your parents and the way I the way I describe it is that you can develop a weird sibling rivalry with your parents church um, so it's allowed a needier sibling because there's like a hundred of them or there's one of you and so there is something to be said about mm. you're called to be a parent and to be a mm. vicar and those two things are different and they don't you have to work out how that looks for you and letting your child be selfish it's not a kind of have a tantrum if you get your way kid like that's not how it works I'm not suggesting that but just to kind of this is my time with you set aside time mm. like my my mum's dad was a vicar is a vicar and um, once a year she had um, three siblings. And once a year, he would take each of his kids out for a day and be like, I'm yours for the day. And just something like that just mm. makes such a difference, whether it's a day a week, uh, evening a week, like um, whatever it is. Um, do something which makes your child know really like things that they can point to being like, this is when I spent time with my dad. This is when I spent time with my mum. Because although you see yourself making sacrifices for your child, sometimes you have to state the blaringly obvious to your children. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for them to notice I think it was quite difficult for my dad to take time off unless mm. we went away because mm. otherwise he couldn't he's the sort of person he couldn't not answer the door yeah. well, you bump um, into people and you bump into yeah. people in the street you know I think and you know he, he would always have his dog's collar on walking out about right. he knew every he knew everybody um uh, so I think that would have been quite difficult but you know I mean what we did was you know we took holidays away mm. sort of in Devon or, mm. or wherever and um 
and that was that was really nice because there was no contact at all and you didn't you didn't know anybody um and parishioners I mean so you know you yeah. could just kind of get on and you know we did you know hol- normal holiday things picnics you wouldn't bump into parishioners on holiday well, exactly. oh no did that happen we've all had those moments right. <laughs> it probably did happen you'd have to ask my parents but uh, I'm yeah. sure they've uh, heart sinks sure. <laughs> my mum tells a great story about um she said with this day with her dad she's like I want to go to a place where no one knows you so he took her to France and they walked down the street in France and was like oh reverend and it was it was a parishioner (laughs) who knew her dad and she was like seriously we're in france for the day and this happens we've all yeah so you can never escape (laughs) and just the final ones about making a very serious one really making sure your child feels safe um Mm. i guess being in a vicarage it's, it's a big place sometimes in quite dangerous areas yeah and everyone knows where you live um that's the thing is that you can i mean particularly with the internet like you can google the vicarage and the church and vicarage is usually next door and um the way i talk about it is if your child was scared of the dark even though you know that's an irrational fear you wouldn't leave them in a room in the dark you'd leave a nightlight on so even if you know that the child has an irrational fear of being in a particular room or with a group of people or whatever like that's like that's a that's an okay fear to have talk them through it and they'll like they'll grow out of it but just be really aware that vicarages are big and dark mm. and quite scary everyone knows where you live you have panic buttons installed which actually when i realized that you had a panic button installed i was every vicarage does i know <laughs> um oh. when i realized i was like this is both soothing and quite scary because everyone like suggest that suggests that we might need it yeah um, but every apparently every vicarage does have a panic button. You just I've might not have known where there was. Yeah. There was a panic button rusty old vicarage. I never found it. <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it's like a new installation thing with like quite possibly. I but um, now it's a it's a thing. Um, but just something like that. Um, everyone, everyone knows where you live, and sometimes churches are filled with people who are scary because that's what church is. Like yeah. church is a place where broken people hang out. So obviously they're going to be people who are a little bit interesting and can be scary when you're younger or when you're feeling vulnerable as a teenager. I mean a lot was made when Theresa May became Prime Minister of her vicarage upbringing and how it may have influenced her politics or her personality as a leader. Do you think too much can be made of that, Patty? I certainly think so. I mean particularly um, for politicians and others who have um, quite a significant role in, in our country. I think there's talk of sort of the moral compass and uh, you know the, their upbringing you know significantly influencing their present day decisions and I think although everyone's childhood you know influences their adult lives I don't think that's always the case and I think some people uh, can be excused for their actions just because oh well it must be right it must be moral she must have a good foundation he must have a good foundation because you know they've they've grown up in a in a in a vicarage and, and around surrounded by christian people and i'm not sure that's that's mm. always the case very different in politics than it is in a church i think as well like as a pleasure child in a church like you have a like a safety net of some respect like you can always make eyes at your parent and be like help yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or something but I, what i what i find so interesting about um the kind of the idea that this person was a close child so therefore they must act in the same way that was the childhood reasoning of a six-year-old in the playground when i said a swear word and they're like what are you doing you're not allowed to say that your parents are vicars <laughs> like it's it's like being back in the playground which i just find absolutely fascinating i completely agree that happened all the time and it does it really great after a while you're like I, i'm not my parents and i think that's sometimes what people have got to remember is mm-hmm. that just because you were brought up by certain people you know it's nature versus nature you're not necessarily going to have the same 
characteristics or same ability to talk to people and, and be social in fact it might even have the opposite effect because you've been you know thrown in the deep end and actually you have an aversion to talking to other people but I mean I'm not saying that's the case but, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know it could happen I wonder if growing up in a vicarage though where you're exposed to many people from different walks of life perhaps you see more of the harsh end of life that could result in a kind of calling to public service of some kind or is that too simplistic I see the logic there. I'm not... I don't know. I never really... You do see a lot of... You see the whole spectrum of people, don't you? Even mm. in a church service, anywhere. Particularly in, like, um, in, a, in a city church service. But whether that means that you want to do something about it and do public service, or whether it means you're just like, I've done that. I did that for my first 18 years of my life. I'm over and out. Mm. I'm going to go and work for a bank or something. I think that's true. true. I think it's just safer not to uh, have any assumptions or, you know... Um, same with any other profession or any other characteristic. I think it's probably best to let people show you their own personality. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.